we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hey, Sam. Welcome to my house. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Yes. It's nice actually sitting around a table and, and actually talking into some microphones rather than being in Sydney with Trady being up here. <laughs> yes, the the guests have gotten to come to my house before you have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't hold jealousy there. Yep. So we're going to do a, a few items of breaking news first to, to kickstart today's Yeah, um, there's a lot, there's lots, lots, lots been coming out. Yeah, so um, the first thing is that early childhood, early intervention, which happens under the NDIS for anyone under seven, from the 1st of July will now be moved to under nines. Yes, exciting. What do you think, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on people? Well, it's going to expand out the supports for the families with uh, kids with autism living on the spectrum uh, in uh, with ID and impaired capacity that's mm. going to give them more supports to help build those fa- foundations and get the groundwork in so then it hopefully the idea with uh, early intervention was to get in early to build those supports to reduce the need long term so having those extra two years is is fantastic for those those families to be able to maintain that because without when you everyone knows when you lose lose a support or a support changes it, it it's a big difference there and seven still a very early point in a child's development yes. um remembering back to my thing i think i was still developing a long time still am developing <laughs> um, but yeah, it does mean that they'll be able to get that, retain that support for a lot longer to help support the family, uh, continue on with the child's goals, development, growth, working with schools and different com- the community elements and mainstream mm-hmm. um, to be able to work towards, work towards getting it done so then we can get onto mainstream supports or move into mainstream NDIS supports. Okay. Cool. Lots of double up words there on support. Anyway. <laughs> That's okay. It's I Friday. Think, <laughs> I think you got it in a nutshell. So that's great. Um, and so just announced on the 7th of June was the NDIS now will accept preferred names and pronouns and your gender. So they do... They do have one tiny caveat that I'm not so excited about <laughs> with this is that still when you call the call centre, 
they need your legal name. Mm. So you still have to dead name yourself. Um, however, I did, as I was saying to someone earlier today, look, I think a tiny incremental change is better than no change, but it would be good if they could go the whole hog. Yes. So there is now, there's a fact sheet on the website all about it. There is also a form to fill in and you can even um, give them your preferred title. They've got MX in there. So that's a bit exciting. So essentially what it's going to mean is that on your plan and with the plan manager, they can now have your preferred name and um, pronouns, which I think is really, really good because a one of the step things in the right direction. that we we have found difficult is although, you know, a lot of our participants, you know, we call them by their preferred names, but when it go, comes to sending an invoice, we have to write their gen name and it always feels awkward mm. um, because it, it just feels disrespectful to me. And um, so I'm, I'm seriously excited by mm. this. Yeah, I'm sure so, uh, a lot of your participants would be quite encouraged by this as well, yeah. I hope. It's definitely a move in the right right direction. Um, definitely needs improvement on that that piece because if you've got a preferred name, that that's the name you want to be using and they have other ways of identifying you as well. So hopefully they do make that, that next leap and, and drop that part after they've done the legal side of things. I, coming from me, I understand all the legal and the privacy and, and the insure, in, need to ensure that you're talking to the right person. Um, but anyone that's been scammed knows that it's easy to pretend you're that person as well. Yeah. Um, so whatever sort of justification they're sort of leveraging in the, in the back to keep that going, uh, I think we'll collectively be a lot happier when they get over that. Changing your legal name is a few hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that's not much money. But for a lot of my participants, it is a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. And especially when you're on the DSP and there's really no wiggle room. So doing a preferred name is really all you sort of have got because to to legally change it takes a heck of a lot of um, also dealing with official forms and yeah, government it's, it's departments and, you know, um, I think a lot of people don't really realise just how tricky that truly is. Um, so it's good. Yeah. And that was our segment on breaking news. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's a bit going on, and so there with the review as well. So, and, and we just had the DSC conference. Yes, which you were able to attend. I was lucky enough to be able to go along down to Sydney and, and spend two days with the, the DSC team and get to network with some people and lots of really good providers, uh, hear from some fantastic guest speakers. There was a really good vibe in the room. Um, from what we understand, uh, the, the ch online chat for those viewers online was going off quite a fair bit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I d DSC did a fantastic job of it, putting together the lineup, uh, putting together the whole conference. Uh, it, yeah, it was really good for everyone that attended, and I hope the people online as well got a lot out of it. Um, there was some really big standout events. Um, so there was a lady by the name of Sorry. Alice Patton, that's it. 
Alice. Alice is a First Nations uh, advocate, and she was speaking about the need uh, for improved culturally safe supports. And she ra uh, raised an, uh, this idea for the agency to bring in a bucket of funding that was very specific to culturally and linguistically diverse communities to help support and implement culturally safe practices within the supports. So it's to help pay providers to provide that, that support that that individual participant needs based on their cultural cultural requirements. So that, that's a big step in, in moving forward to getting real person-centred supports where it's still financially viable for the provider to be able to do so. Because providers that are listening, they, they would know that trying to do all these back-end sort of training infrastructure, we have we have a lot of heart and really want to do a good job, but actually be, to be able to pay, implement, train, and continually improve in very specific areas like culturally safe uh, su supports, it's a very expensive and costly and time time emphasis project that it and and not every every provider also has the has culturally uh, culturally and linguistically diverse participants um so it's where that though anyone that wants to go to any kind of uh provider they can choose that provider and they can be rest assured that that provider has the ability to also provide that culturally safe culturally safe supports um, so it's good for areas where you might be in, not have those kind of support infrastructures that automatically know your culture, your religion, your background, where you come from. Um, so then you can go choose a provider and go, hey, look, I, I want you to do this. And then they can work with you. And it's not a financial burden on that provider either to be able to have to uplift a whole staff team to work with that just one individual participant, which I think is a, a really good and positive thing. And I really hope the um, agency taken on board. Yeah, I think that sounds amazing. And I think it's it's great that emphasis on, um, you know, for First Nations participants in the first place, but also for, um, you know, it's some of some participants that I've either had or my friends have had, you know, that, um, for example, um, I I have a male participant who will only deal with males and and will not have even female doctors or yeah. anyone like that around because culturally they, they can't do that. Yeah. And it's really important that those support workers understand that and can advocate and be yeah. there and say, no, no, we really, we, no, really, we need a male doctor yeah. to come in here or a male nurse or 100%. whatever. Um, and I... I'm just really excited to see how this plays out and, and mm. I would really love to see it. Yes. You and me both and I think many First Nations and culturally diverse families are screaming for this. So yeah. let, let, let's just hope that the agency and, and Minister Shorten takes it on board and, and gets the ball rolling with that because th that was the best idea I've heard come into come out regarding changes to NDIS the last two years. Absolutely. Can't I, think of anything better. Yeah. <laughs> so you also, I think you also said um, some issues on staffing. Yeah, well, providers will, will know that it's a bit of a, 
The, the question was posed by the panel. Um, how many providers in the room do you th agree that we're a workforce in a crisis? And it was a very interesting response. There was a good portion that hands went up as high as they could get them. There was a few that were sort of like half-heartedly raising their hand like they've got, but they're just not too sure. Um, and then there was still a, a decent amount not raising their hands for it. Um, so it, it's it's very interesting because there, there's clearly a, a workforce shortage. Like the, the gig process is not being nice to providers. Uh, it's having a big impact on providers' ability to retain, attract as staff. Um, so, and it's also having the same thing for an effect for participants trying to find find workers as well. So, it, it's I would say that we possibly are a workforce in a, cr a crisis. Is it manageable and resolvable? Yes, definitely. How that exactly works is a, is a different question, and and what sort of um, stuff that. Uh, the NDIA does, that the government does, and that individual providers do, and, and to an extent, individual workers as well. Because gig, gig work, as good as it can be, has some really big risk factors that I don't think a lot of independent support workers fully appreciate or realise. There is, I, I know quite a lot of... Uh, independent workers that don't have insurance on day one. Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> they oh, weren't too sure if they no. needed to do it because they were contracting with another provider and that provider didn't ask that oh, question. Oh my goodness. Yes, that that that, that cringingness <laughs> for, for those of you playing at home, there is cringeworthiness happening all over Hannah's face. Yep. Um, it, it reflects my sentiments on it quite well. In my humble little opinion, I think it's absolutely a workforce in crisis. I think there's a number of issues. So number one is in the last quarterly report, it said we're just about to hit 600,000 participants on the NDIS. Mm. And we, in that case, we need something in the realms of a, another 100,000 support workers. And I don't know where these people are going to come from. And then the second issue is that a lot of these support workers can be well-meaning, but they're really poorly trained. And mm. that irritates me to no end because one of the things they really forget is that their job is in capacity building where it can be capacity built and also about privacy and confidentiality is just a huge one I see constantly. One of the biggest things I see constantly violated, um, they, they talk about their participants, they give far too many details yep. to their friends or whatever, and I just, it, oh, it is just so annoying. Biggest pet hate. And so... I think I think some of some of those issues need to be addressed and and along with that education would be you must have insurance. Mm -hmm. You cannot work without a working with children's card or a disability 
Um, yellow, yellow card, card in Queensland. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the weird thing that, that the agency, uh, on that note around working with coach, because the, the requirement of the agency, if you're a non-registered provider, you don't have to have that. You're not required to. The, the real trend diff, stark difference is with the state legislation where, so Queensland wants you, wants you to, has a no card, no start law. So if no. you're working with children, you need to have that working with children's card. And it's not you're waiting for the application to go through. It's you're, you're needing to have the worker's children check in your hand before day one. And uh, it's, yeah, it, and I see that happening quite a lot where, oh, the application's just in and, and it'll be okay and then it's never followed up and next thing you know, you're three months in, you've got a three, you, you pass a probation period and you have a worker in your employment that you doesn't have the right working screening. And it, it's it, the, the price, the, the fines that are applicable to providers are like above $50,000. Gosh. That's a minimum. I think that's. I think the minimum is around the sixty-three thousand mark. Wow. So when you look at it from a, a workforce, and that's per case. So if you're you're having really bad uh, work uh, workers screening processes, and you're not following the risk assess role process, then you're potentially like up for millions of dollars if you're not looking at your workers screening and not paying attention to the state-based requirements for the participants that you're working with in those states. And and those some of those laws still apply to independents. Correct. Like having flipping insurance. You must have insurance before you start working with a participant. Yeah. As an independent. Yeah, as an independent. If you're working as an employee, you, you better hope that your boss has got that sorted for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And work cover while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, one of the things that have come up recently is about chat, chat GPT. Oh yeah. A, which a for topic. some reason I always stumble over saying. Yeah. It, it's, it's not the easiest thing to come out with chat GTP. Um, um. so <laughs> what do you see as some of the issues with the way people are using chat GPT? I don't see issues as much as privacy concerns. Yeah. So there are some serious privacy concerns that underlay it because you're you're using essentially using a computer AI. So if you're going to be using it, you need to be careful not to be putting people's names, people's locations, essentially redact the hell out of everything you, you're using it for. But there are some really exciting positive things that it can have application for. So, for example, writing a summary report of your of your case notes. So, what you get to do is is get the case notes, making sure that there's no names or, and, and taking that that that, pri- that personal identification element out of it. But summarize this, and you put plug in, copy and paste the information there. Press a button, and it will it will summarize it nicer than you can do a one pager summary for it. Um, Stuff like uh, helping to write reports as well is uh, something. So Sam from the growing space has been playing around with this idea for a while now. Um, and she had a session on at the, at the conference and it was really exciting. I think there's lots of potential. I think there's 
also a little bit of the scary element because you're, you're playing with information, you're playing with the internet and you're playing with artificial intelligence. Uh, and my cousin set up um, a foundation in Los Angeles that is around essentially keeping the AI, like the framework and regulations on how AI um, experience it's really interesting, well and truly out of my technical expertise. Um, but I, I'm, I'm glad that there's people in the world that are looking at this sort of stuff and how the, the potential flow and effects. But it does pose some really interesting ways for providers to be able to expand on utilising this to increase productivity and increase understanding. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I personally, I'm trying to use it to write some policies for me and see how it goes. So I'll let you know when I come on, <laughs> when we're on next time about how successful I was in that. Um, but, you know, I, I, Sam gave me the idea of, of like challenging us on different ways to use it. So my sort of bread and butter is a lot around policy. So be interesting to see how it will help in that sort of space. And I'm very excited to see what Sam and the rest of the Going Space team and different support coordinators use it for. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, now, one of the things at the conference was a bit of a, sn a sneak preview of what's been happening with the NDIS review that is due out um, later this year. Yeah. And I think one of the things um, that you have brought up with me is around the pricing arrangements. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on this really quickly um, before we sort of move on um, because one of the things that I think is really important for anyone who is an independent but also providers um, who are in a, in a company sense because sometimes they forget that the pricing arrangements document is meant to say only what is the maximum. Yeah. It does not say this is what you have to charge. Yeah. There is so many times where I've gone to a provider and they go, oh, but I have to charge this amount. No, this is, this, <laughs> this is probably my fundamental pet hate of the whole scheme is the failure to put a recommended wholesale price or recommended retail price, yeah. like we do with Big W and wholesales and that sort of stuff. They set a max but didn't put a standard. Yeah. Which meant we had nothing to base light on, mm. which means that everyone automatically goes straight to the maximum because it's the maximum limit. We can, apparently they've gone in and, and done their calculations and figures and, and went, this is the max that we're going to allow. But they didn't set a standard of what an, a, an acceptable bandwidth is, essentially, of, of like, all right, so support coordination, well, that probably could probably stay at the $100 because the, the amount of work that you've done and have to do in for it. No, I'm not saying it stays at the $100. <laughs> But what I'm saying yes. is, no, no. So when you're building the price guide, right, yes. you, you're looking at the, the current max in this point in time. Yes. So let's just say that when we'll back, when the $114 came out, 
that hundred dollars and fourteen cents. Sorry, yeah, actually, <laughs> it's Friday afternoon. <laughs> And for the record, everyone at home, it's five o'clock. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the hundred and fourteen hundred dollars and fourteen cents when they when they put that in there, they were, they they use a whole heap of calculations around what the training was, what the the providers had to do, what kind of legislation requirement was it, and a lot of other variable factors. And they did a whole heap of calculations and went, "Cool, here's the number." What they haven't done is explained that process to actually standardize it for small independents. So what's an independent overhead versus what's a large company overhead? Where's the difference in it? Where's the quality layout? Then not to forget, because uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of providers at home going, what about money to be actually reinvest as well? So back into staff and training and that sort of stuff. So it becomes a very, very hard process to work out where that is, but I think the f- biggest failure from that level was not putting in a recommended price or a pricing average. Um, and that's how we've ended up in this big cluster buggery that, that we're all in. Yeah, because the idea was that participants would be able to even negotiate yeah. a price. And so far, I have not seen a provider who is willing to negotiate no. on price. A few independents will. But even then, a lot of independents are like, well, I have to pay for my insurance. I have to pay for my um, blue card, yellow card for, you know, my own fuel and everything. And and then you're like, okay, I get all of that, but... <sighs> You know, we were supposed to be able to negotiate yeah. and go, you know, this is how much the person has been granted. If we can negotiate, we can get more hours out of this plan. And the NDIS has funded participants based on that idea. And then when we've gone back to them and said, well, actually, no one will negotiate with that, with us, they go, oh, that's not our fault. Yeah, That's the money you're getting. It, it's the marketplace. But the the from the review the review on the first day of the conference dropped a submission paper on on this whole topic, uh, and the one of the sort of big call outs from it was around the marketplace and lack of incentive for quality supports, and I'm really hoping that one of the elements to come out of the review would be an improvement on that a recognition of that what is your average what is the standard or the accepted or recommended price um as well as in how to incentivize the market to negotiate better because as you said i i I know maybe a very small handful of providers around the country that actually do under market value market max yeah which is it's good to see that they're doing it um, and they're, they're definitely having their own sort of, um, things that they need to look at. Cause the other risk that happens is scale as you go, is you drop it down, everyone goes, cool, let's go here. And then it topples over cause it gets too many people, not enough staff and has that scalability problem, yep. uh, which also, also is a bit of a risk for a lot of smaller providers, but I'm hoping that the Bill Shorten and the rest of the agency and the review can get to a cohesive way for providers to move forward on this topic. 
maybe just a recommended retail price on the on services so then we've actually got some ability to start negotiating because without that we can't have a standard to go well this is what it should be like when you're going into big w and you're looking at the sales while well, you're looking against big w and target who's got the better sale on where's the for the price at who's a little bit higher who's a little bit lower providers really need to step their game up and, and do the same thing yeah awesome awesome all right so now we're gonna have a bit of a quick chat about some changes in the zeitgeist <laughs> around plan managers and invoicing in particular. Oh, yes. The so good old invoice. <laughs> invoices, there are certain things that an invoice must have on it. And they're things like the provider's ABN, the participant's name and address, and mm -hmm. a few other things like that. But one of the things that up until recently has not been absolutely necessary was the actual line item number. And it seems to me that now plan managers need to see the line item number in there. Yeah. So what are you seeing with, because you work with a lot of plan managers. I do. <laughs> and I have a very strong feeling of this. If you're submitting an NDIS invoice as an NDIS provider and you don't know what the line item that you're meant to be billing for is, you need to take a very big second look at yourself and go, am I doing the right thing as an independent worker or do I need to go get an employed job with a provider? Because quite frankly, if you're questioning a plan manager, and going, oh, what, why do I need to put a price guide? Because that's what they're telling you to do. That, that's what they are required to do. Your job is to put the information onto a invoice and send it to them for approval. You, by not putting your, the NDIS number, the item code, oh, sorry, this is a big gripe for me. By not putting the item code on it, you're making somebody else who earns less money an hour making you do that job. And quite frankly, as a provider, that is your job. You are wanting to get paid. Freaking just do it. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Like I can I completely agree. It's it's just not that hard. You find what you're doing, you find the code. Yeah. Well, you and write the, it thing, down. the thing is, like if you look from the the, the NDIS, what's it called? The business. Terms of business, right? It goes service agreement. In that service agreement, you should have a schedule of supports. That schedule of supports should go define what that line number is. When you're looking at becoming a provider, you go, what services I'm going to go? You're, you're looking at that and you're going, okay, cool. I'm going to do support coordination. So you go have a look at the price guide. You go, okay, cool. That, that's the price. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, I could do PRC. Oh, I could do this one. Okay. So that matches my supports that I have in my schedule available. Then you talk with your participant and you go, right, here's my service agreement. Let's negotiate. Are you happy with this price? Do you want to have that negotiation? Do you not? Are you, that's, that's where that's meant to come in. Yes. Then it flows through. They sign their service agreement and there's your line items. That's your codes. You know what the total available billing is. You have that mapped out. Then you do your service. 
And then you look at the price service agreement and go, oh, look, there's my code. And you fill that in that invoice, you put your ABN under, not somebody else's ABN, because I've seen a lot of really bad ABNs lately. Um, send that off, it gets approved and goes through that process. It, you, you're not meant to be making a plan manager do your job for you. I'm thinking that that might make some plan managers happy and some independents not so happy, but quite frankly, you're working with very vulnerable people if you can't get some very basic admin business functions right, should you be doing business in the first place? Exactly. And bringing up service agreements, <laughs> I mean, I have seen some shocking service agreements and we could do, and we probably will do a whole episode just on service agreements because it, they, I have seen some shockers and it, it is quite, ridiculous how how just poor people are at putting together a service agreement and it's just not that hard not overly <laughs> there, there's some very lovely basic easy read guides that are out from the agency there's a million and one uh Consulting agencies that have templates. I don't do templates because there's a million of other I agencies. D- I have a service agreement template for people to purchase. Well, there we go. Sure. So hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that's it. So and and the same, when you're looking at those sort of things, it, it when you're buying templates, documents, that sort of stuff, just because they're that doesn't mean they're purpose suitable for your services you're doing support coordination you're not doing still so it wouldn't so they could pull look at doing that but when you're looking at your services supports and cancellation terms and rosters and that sort of stuff and accommodation elements that you need to expand or add in the areas that you need to suit your business um so it's about sort of just making sure that you're covering yourself as well as protecting the participant. So everyone's clear. We use this word transparent quite a lot. It should be transparent. It should be crystal clear to both you, to the participant, and everyone should be happy days in in utopia. (laughs) Good on ABC. We've got to love them. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I think we have come to the end of this episode. Excellent. We, we love it. So um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for welcoming to your home. It's been wonderful. I'm looking forward to yeah, many more trips around. And Oh, I did want to mention, like, there was a delay in getting another episode out because I, I injured my shoulder. So there's still probably going to be a few delays to come, but bear with us. We are trying to get out the episodes more often so thanks yeah. we, we weekly's good but i, I think it, we we like to overexert ourselves sometimes <laughs> yeah so maybe not every week but we'll do our best to get something going yeah yeah right. awesome well looking forward to the next one hannah yeah bye bye everyone thank you for listening please share with people you know you can email us at what in the ndis pod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at tulipcoordination.com.au. And to contact Sam, it's sam at rosenbaum.org.
Consulting. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.